Hello and welcome to another episode of Startistan, a series by Pakistan Podcast Company. Pakistan Podcast Company is the hub for all conversations Pakistani at home and abroad. You can find us on our website pakistanpodcast.com and on iTunes, SoundCloud and Patari as Pakistan Podcast Company. Get in touch or follow us on our Facebook page Pakistan Podcast Company. Tweet at us at Pakistan Podcast or email us at hello at pakistanpodcast.com. In this series, I will be speaking with some of the most incredible Pakistani startup founders and change makers, shaking things up across the globe. I'll tell you what freedom is to me. Sixty-five million. That is the number of Pakistanis that live off-grid. This means they have absolutely no access to electricity, and they primarily depend on firewood and dung cakes for their domestic energy needs. In the process, each family of six approximately releases eighteen kilograms of carbon dioxide and twelve point six kilograms of methane in the air on a daily basis. On top of this, in the winter months. When firewood consumption more than doubles across Pakistan's northern areas, households spend anywhere between 25 to 50 percent of their monthly income on acquiring firewood, leaving little to spend on other essential items such as health and education. According to the WHO, inefficient fuel consumption indoors and exposure to black carbon from traditional cookstoves is the second most leading causes of death. resulting in approximately 4.3 million deaths per year globally today i'm in conversation with khizr imran tajammul founder jan pakistan jan pakistan is an award winning social startup based in lahore pakistan dedicated towards researching manufacturing and distributing affordable clean energy cooking solutions for low income communities across pakistan on average Their consumers report 40% savings on cooking fuel expenses and their best-selling product, the Supreme Cook Stove, is expected to save up to 11,000 lives over the next 10 years. So how's it going? It's going good, man. Yeah. How yeah. is uh how's work? How has that been? Work has been good. Uh I've been in Calgary for the past um um two weeks and so a lot of remote management with the folks in lahore right and we're sort of getting acclimatized to um you know just sort of coordinating across the atlantic which can be a little challenging in the beginning because you're uh you have to get up either very early or you have to sleep very late right and definitely can't do both because then you just have a very long day Right. <laughs> Although I know people who do do that, that is quite, uh, quite a bit of commitment. Yes. Yes. I think we're focusing on uh, now, like we do either the morning meeting or the evening right. meeting, but we're we're getting into a pattern now, and it's uh, the communication is getting better and more streamlined. Fewer. Yeah, you don't need. Yeah, you don't need to, you know, converse twice a day if you've got a solid uh, work plan. and you know you can have like a quick stand up or scrum sort of thing happening once a day 
and that should be good enough. Yeah, sweet. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice. Uh, so, Jan Pakistan. Um, this has been around for what four years now. Yeah, we. The idea came about in the summer of two thousand and fourteen, and we won our first award. We got our first recognition in October two thousand fourteen. That's when we oh, won. Yeah, we won the Rwanga Social Startup Competition at the time. Jan Pakistan was just an idea, and uh, we didn't have any boots on the ground, so to speak. Right. So how? So you got an award just based on an idea. Like, was this award for only ideas, or was it just open to like? Was it open to established enterprises as well? We were competing with other companies that had done more than just written a business plan and made a pitch plan. Right. Um, and one of the winning companies, there were three companies that actually won the prize. One company that won the prize had done more. They had some traction. They had a website. They had customers. Mm-hmm. But the two other companies that won uh, were both idea stage. And this was really an award for uh, assessing the commitment of the entrepreneur to the idea. And right. one thing that uh, one of the judges said at the time of the award was that we don't invest in ideas. We invest in the people behind them and the team. Right. Right. So I think it was a, the, the assessment was, a, you know, on how you act stand up in front of 1300 people and present your idea and how do you feel questions about it? It was something similar to, uh, you know, we had some people from dragon's den on the judges panel. Okay. And then we had professor Mohammed Yunus himself, the, you know, right. Grammy. The, the Grameen Bank, the Google right. social business, if you want to call them that. Mm. That was in 2014. And it happened at a time when we weren't even thinking about clean cooking. Right. Uh, the idea was about affordable energy solutions. And our focus mm. was on a solar water heater. That's what I remember. Yeah. So I, is this the same video that's up on your website? Because I, I saw a pitch like in preparing for this podcast, uh, I saw you made a pitch on that is what you mentioned that, you know, that your focus is the solar water heater. Um, There's no mention of like cook stoves. So before we get into that, like what was the motivation behind solar products? And then we'll get to, you know, how the product sort of changed uh, from a water heater to cook stoves. Sure. So there were a lot of different motivations. 2014 was a period of transitioning from a full-time job at a multinational public relations communications outfit into a world of uh, initially uncertainty and then social entrepreneurship. So what, what made you take that plunge? So there were different motivating factors. I, uh, in my experience working with different international organizations doing behavior change communication campaigns, I was a little frustrated with the idea of limited funding or limited project timelines. So we would do an advocacy effort, but it would only last a year and you know it would lose its impact because a lot of the projects we did were not translated into something long term. And um, the more I did of that, the more I was convinced that, you know, I need to spend my energies in something that can, that can live longer than this, that can, you know, you know ha- stand up on its feet and uh, continue to benefit people. So 
entrepreneurship and particularly social entrepreneurship was something that really kind of hit the nail on that uh, issue. Yeah, so that was the main motivation behind social entrepreneurship, um, a business that will, you know, uh, outlive the tests or of, of changing policies or changing sort of government priorities or international donor organization priorities. Hmm. Do you still hold those views? Initially getting into it, that's a very sort of rosy, sort of romanticized version of <laughs> it. And now sort of being through, yeah. you know, grinding the gears and sort of being through the ecosystem and this for four years, does that still sort of hold? Uh, drastically different opinions today. <laughs> uh, social business is still very close to my heart. I'm very much committed to it. But is it the only answer to sustainable change? No, definitely not. Um, I have over the years grown a lot of uh, appreciation for policy work. I think um, you know the a few good policy changes can make enormous impacts. You know, for the general public and for social enterprises. Absolutely. So uh, lobbying efforts and advocacy efforts are still very important, mm-hmm. and I think it's really about how you spend your energy. You can still do behavior change communications and maybe not talk to the end customer. I wouldn't talk to the end customer. I would actually talk to people at the top, really. I mean, people in government, people leading private sector organizations, those are the people with power. Those are the people who continue spending money on the issue. Those are the people who have the money to spend. Eventually, they make the decisions. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I think advocacy is still relevant. And it, uh, if you, you just need to change your... Focus. I think, it, right. Like advocacy is important for validation, right? You still need to validate what you're working on. And for that, you need public opinion and sort of the greater sort of consumer on your side. Um, so, all right. So going back to uh, the inception. So the motivation was, you know, you wanted to start a sustainable, social, socially aware business, a social enterprise. And so what, after, what, what happened after that? Why, how did it become solar? Yeah, so social business was one major factor. And the other major factor was um, something that would appeal to me, something that I would enjoy doing mm. personally. And at that time, I was, you know, getting exposure on... Uh, different kinds of social projects that different entrepreneurs and uh, uh, individuals are doing across the globe. So I was watching a lot of TED Talks. I was also reading a lot. I was writing for a, 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 writing a column for a newspaper. So you know, it, there was a lot of reading and writing and researching going on, right? Mm-hmm. So And uh, my, my decision... What was the focus of all these reading, writing, researching? Like, was it like focused in one sector and topic or was it like not not really i mean i i i I ended up writing about i think maybe 51 columns for the nation over a year and a half and i also i did a lot of features so i had an interest in startups so i would actually go you know um, identify uh good performing or you know sort of 
upcoming startups in Pakistan. Right. And I'm, I would go meet them and I would talk to them about their journey, something similar. Uh, doing you, should been, you should have been doing this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, I, I featured Markhor. I featured um, right, right. a couple of other social startups at the time. Amazing. Yeah. And I wrote about them. Uh, so I was getting a lot of my information and knowledge from there about the, about their journey and about how my journey could potentially be. And along with that, I was also writing a lot about human rights in Pakistan. I was also writing a lot about business opportunity in Pakistan because that's those right. are the things that mattered to me then and now. And then, of course, uh, the TED Talks for the inspiration. Right. And I'd like to mention just the one... TED Talk, I think that left a lasting impact on me. It's uh, an Indian uh, by the name of Bunker Roy, who is the founder of uh, Barefoot College in Rajasthan. Okay. And, uh, that TED Talk was just blew me apart. Uh, the kind of impact uh, Bunker Roy was making in India, actually teaching people how to fish through the Barefoot College. You know, the the, the basis of the college was so inspirational that anybody could teach there and anybody could 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 study there and it was a no boundary no wall university where really the essence was uh to learn right and it didn't matter what certificates you had or what your background was it, it mattered that you have the will or the motivation to give and anybody can give right and it's mm. not somebody with a degree and a bachelor's in a in, in engineering can teach how other people how to make solar water heaters or solar cook stoves. Mm. They were able to develop engineers who were in the real world sense illiterate and who did not have school education, but who still were able to contribute a lot mm. in, right. in capacity to learn and in their capacity to teach. So just that idea uh, of the Barefoot College and what the Barefoot College achieved through this ethos was really inspiring. And one of the major focuses on, at Barefoot College was developing uh, solar, they call them solar mamas. So who are solar mamas? Solar mamas are essentially grandmothers right. from four countries across the globe who fly to India over and they, li they live in India in Rajasthan at the Barefoot College for six months. And through sign language, they learn, they learn the art of making uh, solar electrification home panels. And after oh, six months, they go back to their villages and they bring electricity to, to, to areas and to households that have not right. seen light before. I mean, it was... <laughs> I have so many questions right now. <laughs> but I know that's going to, we're going to, you know, that's going to take away from the what we're here to discuss, but that is very cool. Like I'm going to definitely look it up and I'm going to, I'm definitely going to share it within the podcast notes. Like this seems very cool. It was very cool. Well, what Bunker, and so Bunker Roy really became one of the biggest major motive. I mean, that TED talk uh, changed me. <laughs> wow. wow. And, and uh, from uncertainty, I, I became more and more certain about what I wanted to do. And I, you know, I thought affordable energy, man. India and Pakistan have similar problems. Right. And, um, I don't know a lot, a lot of people who are working in the in the energy space here. It's still a very young space. 
and i'm talking about rural energy yeah i'm talking right. about in you know communities where people don't have access to natural gas or electricity electricity right and the kind of impact that can make in a, in a in a in a household's lifetime is enormous so 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 initially so your initial product uh, that you guys wanted to develop were solar uh, water heaters so how did you end up upon that initial product idea it was something very naive really i mean it was based out of it was born out of our limited understanding of what pakistani rural households may need oh, you know okay. we thought in our wisdom or lack thereof <laughs> that uh, people across pakistan rural pakistan would actually need would want warm water hmm. in winter and we were we were so wrong about that because when we actually started moving into the field and when we started getting feedback right we learned from people that you know water is when it's uh, extracted from the ground it maintains a uniform temperature at 26 degrees celsius through the course of the year right um which is warm to touch in the winter and cool to touch in the summer and which is what right. people want right and really hot water is is prepared over a fire mm. uh as and when needed for the very young and the very old right everybody in between is quite happy with right tube well water right right so uh you know people said thanks but no thanks you know you <laughs> you want to give us a solar water heater we don't want it and we def- we're definitely not going to pay for it right so <laughs> so, so then I, the next big question for us was okay what are, what are the pain points then right. in energy what is bothering people in hmm. the space hmm. and uh, the recurring sort of pain point uh, that we heard across particularly in the northern parts of the country was the incremental cost of purchasing biofuels and in biofuels firewood was getting more and more expensive over the years uh, against the dwindling uh, you know backdrop of uh, pakistani forests so that is that is a problem that we then began to address and and jan pakistan then you know shifted away from solar water heaters mm. and we started researching solar cook stoves and okay. when we started talking about or researching solar cook stoves uh, we at that time had uh, some experts as advisors who were who were advising us on product development and product yeah. but we did not have any full time engineers on board and so we were a little underconfident or a little unsure about thinking about manufacturing or developing an indigenous product you know at, the, at that time our focus was on using our expertise in uh, microfinance and behavior change communications and rural development to import a product that works in other geographies across the globe right solar cook stoves that are established abroad bring those in and establish those products here in pakistan okay and uh, that was the first phase of say our of our journey in trying to alleviate the pain point of the incremental cost of firewood and we weren't thinking about we 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 didn't think about the health or the economic 
we were thinking about the economic impact, of course. Right. But we weren't thinking about the health or the environmental impact so much. Because that was not something that the community was was talking to us about anyway. Right. When we researched into the scale of the issue, hmm. we were so taken aback by right. the enormity of of the task that we had we had uh, taken upon ourselves from the global alliance of clean cook stoves that you know we soon partnered with after we set out on this journey we learned that 3 billion people across the globe are still cooking over open fires oh wow and um 4.3 million individuals mostly women and children uh perish to fatal respiratory illnesses each year as a consequence of inhaling harmful soot particles and solid fuel fumes. I still remember the day when uh, my, you know, my partner, Daniel, stumbled upon this fact. Mm. And, he, and, and, and then he's like, listen, dude, you have no idea how big this is. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was intimidating. It was daunting. It was scary. It was terrifying. Right. And, but it also gave us new meaning. It gave us new new purpose. Hmm. And I think it also kind of strengthened our resolve to, to, to to sort of stick to this. Right. Right. I mean, it was really very big. It was a big issue. And gave probably gave you more selling points as well. Right. Now, like rather than just having a conversation around economic benefits, you could have, uh, you can sort of expand upon that conversation uh, to include health and environmental sort of benefits of moving away from biofuel or, you know, firewood. So it turns out that when we got into the clean cooking scene, the world had grown a little tired of the clean cooking scene. <laughs> Interesting. Why? So clean cooking has been a subject of yeah. global interest and it's something that the United Nations has developed a dedicated entity for called the Global Alliance for Clean Cook Stoves. Parent organization for GSCC is the UN. Okay. And the UN Foundation. Right. And um, there was a time, I think maybe four or five years ago, when we were actually starting out, mm. that a lot of impact investors and a great many donors and you know international aid organizations were pumping in a lot of money into clean cooking. And most of this funding was being channeled into, say, uh, different parts of East Africa, different parts of South America and India, and also East Asia. And somehow, one way or another, Pakistan seems to sort of miss out on these waves of investment. There are various reasons for it. Uh, Pakistan is under a very strict watch because, well, you know that the entire world is looking at Pakistan because uh, for its uh, alleged terrorist activities. Right. And, uh, you know, the state bank has very stringent policies on how the money can enter, any sort of foreign investment can enter Pakistan or leave Pakistan. So there are a lot of eyes watching money in and out of Pakistan. Yeah, like some something like Save the Children didn't necessarily help the cause either. Something like Save the Children didn't help the cause either. It was, uh, you know, uh, NGOs were actually 
fronting again allegedly fronting mm. uh, uh, intelligence uh, you know acting like intelligence right. numbers right. so all that was happening that was the climate right mm. in 2014 and we didn't even know clean cooking was like a global issue we were actually trying to solve the problem of a household in a village in a province in pakistan right. Right. Yeah, we thought this okay this is micro this is a huge issue Hmm. so pakistan pretty much missed out on that wave of investment and development and when we when we woke up to it and when we started reaching out to the world to help us in our mission right we confronted or we faced to a great extent there was there was certain in, investor fatigue in this space hmm. and right. there was a certain sense of i wouldn't say boredom but I think fatigue is perhaps the best word to describe it. You know, right. like people were just a little tired of not being able to make the money from the investments that they had, they had made mm. in the geographies. Hmm. And that, like, well, what, what about the impact? So, like, they may not have had the expected returns in their investment, mm-hmm. but is there impact to at least back that their investment had, you know, improved standards of living? and improved conditions for people there before there are success stories there are plenty of success stories in the clean cooking space hmm. but a, a sum of 200 organizations that we've reached out to hmm. some organizations that we thought were absolutely apt to support us hmm. have now developed a policy of not supporting clean cooking companies because they've actually supported far too many clean cooking companies already oh wow so so some doors that we thought would be open to us are closed mm. but that doesn't mean that they're not making an impact uh, clean cooking companies are definitely making an impact okay just that investors have their portfolio needs to be a certain amount of diverse mm. it needs to be a certain amount different and distinct mm. and you know no investor would want to put all his eggs in clean cooking basket uh having said that it also makes sense for investors to specialize in a certain vertical so it really it really depends on the investor but i think uh, when you talk about government backed dev sector international aid organizations they're yeah. looking at diversifying their uh, investments right in different innovations hmm. and if you're looking at certain other impact investors like acumen for example they've invested in i think four uh, clean cooking companies across the globe okay. so so i think it really depends on who you were talking to uh, right. some some like to specialize in in a single vertical so that they can be more successful at it hmm. and hmm. other donors are looking at uh, diversity uh but in this scenario like generally there's like i said you know a certain tiredness hmm. um and uh despite that we've uh, we've struggled and we've also been successful right and uh, we've won a series of social business competitions that has kept us afloat and we've also won a number of strategic grants and okay. more often than not the grants have been um very sort of health centric grants mm, okay. centric grants that you know they they've been about maternal and child health right 
And only recently we won, uh, you know, our third grant. And you'll hear about this in the coming weeks. And I'm not at liberty to speak about it at length just yet. But this particular grant is a more... Uh, is a more generic grant. It's not a very health-specific grant. It's, uh, mm-hmm. in fact, we've been categorized as, uh, you know, an energy company. Amazing. So, yeah, so that's uh, that's the fundraising potential of clean cooking. It's, right. It's not fantastic anymore, but mm. uh, considering that uh, clean cooking addresses uh, an economic issue, right? issue, Mm. And an environmental issue. Mm. It really uh, ticks off a lot of boxes in, right. in in your sustainable goals. Right. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Innovation Lab, which provides testing ground for novice entrepreneurs, change makers, innovators, and institutions to come together and work for social justice through social innovation. Their latest endeavor, Beyond the Buzz, is a comprehensive report that takes an extensive look at the entrepreneurship ecosystem of Pakistan. Since releasing a little over three weeks ago, they've already sold hundreds of print copies and are currently in the process of bringing it online for the international audience. For more information, check out their website, sockinlab.org, that's S-O-C-I-N-N-Lab.org. Oh, and one more thing. When purchasing the e-copy of this report, use promo code Pakistan Podcast. that's all lowercase, to get an additional 25% off. Happy reading. Like, it's interesting you mention investor fatigue. People, the world has sort of moved on from clean cooking. Like, there's still, like, the numbers you mentioned, like, it's still affecting, you know, 4.3 million fatalities. Uh, per year so it's not like they've solved it and moved on like the problem still exists they haven't been able to solve it like the global what's the global sort of initiative around this now is there a global initiative or has the constitution just moved on from you know clean cooking that we can't affect clean cooking we cannot impact behavioral change in the way people cook so we need to solve this problem in a different way so I think uh, when clean cooking was a new subject, companies executing clean cooking initiatives were also learning a lot okay, and making mistakes, of course. Right. And I think they've made their mistakes and I think they've learned from it. And today, any clean cooking initiative has uh, a greater chance of succeeding than before, thanks to the lessons that we've gathered. Hmm. through the failures, through through the early failures of some of the first movers in this space. Right. And the Global Alliance for Clean Cooktures is doing a wonderful job in documenting these journeys. So today, as we partner with the GACC, they, they have an intimate understanding of how we operate and function. And we've also applied for funding through GACC because they really are sort of representing clean cooking initiatives across the globe in a, in a big way. Right. Your question about donor fatigue and investor fatigue. Yes. They weren't able to maybe see the impact initially, but companies that have either avenues to additional funding or deeper pockets 
have rectified operations so that they are generating revenue in a in a more sustainable fashion selling clean cooking units to households that are typically uh, burning f- fire or other biofuels openly is is a particularly difficult thing to do because you're asking people to buy a product and they're used to cooking without buying anything uh, many communities many off-grid communities are simply gathering the fuel mm. from either the forest floor or from their fields right and then they're burning it and they're using sometimes maybe three bricks you know it's called a three stone stove okay people will just essentially put three bricks in a u-shaped sort of uh position and put their cooking utensil on it and cook their food and none of this has an economic cost hmm. uh yes you're spending a little bit of time gathering the fuel burning it but how much time will you save if you're burning less fuel people aren't really thinking about that so selling to that particular demographic is has always been challenging and will continue to be challenging right i think the clean cooking initiatives that have had some success have had that success through two or three different avenues now what are those avenues either you're selling the clean cook stoves to communities that are in the habit of paying for cook stoves and those cook stoves may not be as efficient mm-hmm. but still there's a certain prior behavior of buying cook stoves right so that's one avenue of finding uh, reaching success sooner or you know slightly more easily right the other avenue is partnering with aid organizations that buy into the idea of clean cooking and will spend a significant amount of money on behavior change communications mm-hmm. so advocating or you know like executing a mass awareness campaign across a city or a district or a large enough population for a for a long enough period to actually change mindsets right on on clean cooking and dirty cooking right so uh, organizations that have been successful in making those partnerships hmm. have also been successful in selling their cook stoves right so that's really the second avenue and the third avenue which is the ideal avenue is when when the government of the country that you're operating in will say yes we believe in this issue and right. we stand by this xyz company and not just this xyz company we feel the need to initiate a clean cooking industry where multiple companies can compete mm. for the enormous market space right and the government says we'll do the advocacy we create the awareness mm. and a host of private entities social enterprises can develop the cook stoves and sell those cook stoves and why i'm stressing on a host of companies is because cooking is very different in different parts of the world even within a certain country cooking is different uh, between districts right sometimes even within districts Achha. and because there is so much diversity in the way people cook food right you need similar amount of diversity in the companies that produce the solutions 
so that the solutions are customizable to the needs of various communities that are cooking in off-grid settings. Mm. And so I don't think any one company can really can do this on its own. Right. The scale right. is too large and the, 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 the variance is, 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 is too high. Okay. So I've got two questions. Uh, one is you talked about the third, which was the ideal solution where the government, there's public policy and sort of government advocacy around clean cooking initiatives um, and really sort of educating the masses around the benefits of this. The first question would be, you know, where, where has the conversation been around that in Pakistan? And the second is you mentioned that we, because of the varied uses across districts and across communities of cook stoves, apart from John Pakistan, who else exists in this ecosystem in Pakistan right now? And sort of what, how, how are they different? Our communication with the government um, has been limited. Our focus really has been on finding the right product and then also gaining some basic traction to establish proof of concept. Mm. So, you know, the initial few years have really been about understanding the product, understanding the market and, you know, just establishing the business to begin with. We feel that the government would, would maybe begin to speak to an organization that's gaining traction, but, would be more interested in a in a large organization. So I think yeah. I think the conversation with the government of Pakistan or any government for that matter is very important, but we may not be there just yet. Right. But that is a conversation around cook stores, right? So that is around clean cooking. But just in general around, you know, the amount of diseases and fatalities resulting from mm. unclean air as a result of unclean cooking or dirty cooking, as you put it in an earlier conversation we had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so where's the conversation around that? Like, is, like being in Lahore, so you were in Lahore, I was in Lahore. We had a big issue around smog this year in the winter. There is usually an issue of smog where it was exceptionally sort of dirty. The air was exceptionally dirty this year. It was off the charts as far as the spectrum of like healthy, breathable air was concerned. So like... Like was did that seem to trigger something from the government's part uh, in sort of mobilizing efforts around educating and advertising, you know, why firewood or like biofuel is bad for us and the air? So I think uh, one thing that you'll see that governments are very good at doing is, or at least our government is good at doing is, Investing in projects that are visible, investing in projects that can be seen, that are tangible. Mm. Uh, and when I say tangible, I mean, you know, they, they have a very definite cosmetic appeal. So bridges, buildings, um, road networks mm. are, are, are a part of that. And I think in the same vein, they have also realized that, um, you know, Lahore has lost 75% of its tree cover in the last 15 years. Wow. And the effects of that are now beginning to show. Hmm. Um, like you said, in October and November, in the winter season in 2017, things were really bad. And the air quality was has, has never been more poor. Right. 
so the government has I, i think the punjab government has launched or is going to launch um an initiative to plant a certain number of trees across the city right uh, but again the issue with planting those trees is that your you know the benefit of a tree that you cut that's 50 years old you're going to wait another four or five decades to recover that right um so is there an immediate remedy i don't right. know i mean the only immediate remedy really is what can the government do the government should do a number of things the number the government should set up industrial zones and commercial zones and residential zones and be strict about those zones mm. and industries that are in the city should be pushed out of the city mm. industries that are uh, releasing uh, toxic fumes in the air that we breathe should be banned or should be imposed uh, with fines governments need uh, to to start scrutinizing the industries that are polluting the air that we breathe in the cities outside the cities and in rural areas the biggest pollutant is um, well there are two b- big pollutants a that there's a uh, the the buffalo population the livestock population of pakistan uh, yeah so the methane that uh, cows uh, release right contributes to 25% of the uh, global warming that we're experiencing on the planet no way yeah so this is this actually um speaks into some of the you know the climate change movements that uh, that you hear about and that you see and that's it's also maybe coming to pakistan to some extent but our obsession with eating meat as like earthlings like right the global population or you know 7 billion people Mm. uh meat hungry meat intensive meat seeking people mm. uh has born, like given birth to or supported the boom of the food industry mm. and uh you know processed and manufactured right. sort of industrialized food really is also a big problem and it you know it affects uh it affects our climate mm. uh, yeah the the third thing that the government needs to think about and addresses open fires people cooking over open fires that too has a very strong impact on how the air quality changes right. there's a certain practice in uh, agrarian communities across south asia of burning crop residue right so instead of processing it or uh, you know using it for mulching or you know cutting it because all of that is time intensive and uh, you know it's cost intensive mm. the easier thing to do uh, at least in the short term uh, in our myopic view is to burn the crop residue mm. uh, but what that reserves in is what we witnessed in right. lahore in right. the months last year all that all those fumes all that smoke is actually then mixing with the fog and turning into smog mm. and uh you know add industrial uh, air pollution to that and you've got a cocktail of uh, a fine cocktail of of, of death and it's uh, it, it, no one intervention can really solve this issue mm. uh it has to be multiple interventions actually right. shout crises uh the the other thing is the government 
always seems to act promptly on issues that reach the point of crisis. Mm. I mean, take dengue, for example. Why did we start attacking dengue? Why did why were there so many people on the streets, come, uh, you know, um, mm. inspecting your house, uh, coming right. to your house, looking for stagnant pools of water, mm. uh, eradicating those pools, fumigating entire communities mm. to kill uh, the, mosqui- the, the dengue mosquito? Mm. Why? Because people were dying? And people right. were dying in, you know, relatively large numbers. And it right. was all happening at once. Mm-hmm. So we wait for issues to reach a point of crisis before we start responding to those issues. Right. And, you know, Lahore and Pakistan in general is not very far from hitting that point. Like mm-hmm. last year in the winter, I think it was a semi-crisis. Yeah. Having so much smog in the city and having so many people get sick. Yeah, and remain sick for an entire winter month. Like, yeah. you know, it's not a joke. No. Um, in fact, I think it might even the onset of the smog was maybe in October, and it must have lasted till November or December, even or until the yeah. first rainfall. So it was a good few months, in fact, not even yeah. just not not even a single month. Right. And a lot of people have said a lot of things on this subject. So yeah. yes, there is pressure on the government. How do they respond to this uh, in 2018 and 19? Well, I think right now all eyes are on on the elections. All right. eyes are on survival and getting back in, into power. Mm. So if money is going to get spent, it's probably going to get spent on... on optics. Getting optics and getting more popular. And right. you know, perhaps I, I'm not... Because you see, again, since the winter has passed... It's not an issue anymore, right? The sun is mm. shining, it's raining, and the sun is seeping through the sky onto the earth. Right. So, right. do we need to talk about smoke when we don't see the smoke? No. No politician is going to do that. The mm. conversation on this subject, I can bet on it, and you can put this in writing, is only going to come up in the upcoming winter season. When it happens again. again. When, yeah. when, when you need to talk about it. Right. Uh, I, I think we need, uh, I don't know, maybe God forbid, or people may need to die for the government to to wake up to to this issue. Mm. It's very unfortunate. Uh, so kind of taking the conversation back to clean cooking. So you've got two solar cook stoves and one sort of uh, efficient firewood cook stove. So what has been the response uh, when you've gone to sell those and sort of what has, what has been your highest sort of selling product and why? So uh, the solar cook stoves that we introduced at the outset, they were not ergonomically or friendly or, you know, they were not suitable to Pakistani culinary behaviors. And when I, when I say Pakistani culinary behaviors, I'm specifically talking about roti. Uh, ro- making roti on a solar cook stove is a bit challenging. Uh, there are two kinds of solar cook stoves. One is a parabolic uh, reflective dish that right. concentrates the heat of the sun on a focal point. Mm. And that focal point is more often than not, I mean, all, invariably, it's a very narrow and small focal point. Right. Making roti on a, a narrow uh, source of heat is, is, is a challenge because... Roti needs dissipated heat, or you need to really work the roti a lot on top of the <laughs> right. 
so that it keeps getting that uniform heat. Right. And the second issue with solar cook stoves is that, you know, you need to uh, cook out in the open mm. under the under the sun. So while you're cooking food, you're also getting cooked, <laughs> which is not the ideal situation. It does get very hot in Pakistan. Right. Um, you know, maybe in parts of Gilgit, Baltistan or the mountain regions, this may be still feasible to cook outdoors in the open because, uh, and that too in the summer months, because in winter, the cooking shifts indoors. Right. Because it's just too cold. So uh, those were some of the the bigger issues with solar cook stoves, which made us think about moving to biomass fuels and biomass uh, fuel efficient technologies. Okay. And in biomass fuel efficient technologies, we, uh, again, our philosophy was to not reinvent the wheel and to import an existing solution. So we imported some of the best selling stoves uh, that are available across the globe and that are also doing well in India, which is has similar culinary structures. Mm. The The stoves that we imported in Pakistan were not successful for various reasons. The stove sizes were not compatible. Uh, again, the stove tops were narrow. And when I say narrow, I mean, you know, three a three-inch stove top just didn't do it for right. yes. a Pakistan rural household. Right. Also, the combustion chambers were too small. These uh, the, the fuel-efficient stoves that we were trying to push into the market were uh, compatible with finely chopped or finely cut or, you know, like sort of small pieces of, of biofuels. Hmm. And what we learned in Punjab, Pakistan, and in some other parts was that Wood was bought at a certain size. Wood was cut in a certain size. And other biofuels were also existed in a certain size. Now, uh, shaving uh, or sort of uh, fragmenting the source of fuel would add a lot of work to the process of cooking. Right. And it was not going to be sustainable. Okay. Number two, people were already comfortable and familiar with certain stovetop sizes. Hmm. And again, reducing the stovetop size or expanding it was also not going to work. Okay. So we had to then, we were actually then forced to think about developing our own indigenous solution. We were actually forced to think about developing something that would, that would make sense to local communities. Mm. And that would also be efficient. And that would also save save fuel and save, uh, you know, the end user from harmful soot particles and solid fuel fumes. Okay. So our winning product or our flagship product or our minimal viable product is, is called the Supreme stove and it's called Supreme because Supreme is like a nice generic name that everybody knows. Supreme stove was the name is the name of the, of, uh, of the product that we've sold nearly a thousand units of. Achha, and in 2018, uh, we are raising capital close to about half a million dollars to scale operations and sell mm. uh, roughly 13,000 uh, units. Right. And our sort of geographical focus in the upcoming months and in, well, in the upcoming years as well, 2018 and 19. Mm. Uh, is very much the northern areas of the country. We, we're looking at Gilgit, Baltistan, Azad Jammu, Kashmir, 
Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and northern parts of Punjab. So why those specific areas? Those specific areas already are in the habit of purchasing cook stoves. Okay. And uh, selling to those communities, to the community that I, that I just mentioned, is, I, I'd say, less hard or less difficult yeah. compared to selling to uh, the plains uh, in Punjab and selling to, you know, agrarian communities across Sindh. Right. But if, if these communities are already sort of used to purchasing cook stoves, I'm guessing their cooking and the impact it has on the environment and health is less than the ones in the agrarian communities, villages, uh, that you're not selling these cook stoves to. Well, because I, I, I get where, where you're coming from, which is, you know, we'll sell it to whoever, you know, is actually open to buying it. But who, whoever's open to buying it may not be the best community for the impact you're trying to gain from these cook stores. Like, is that, is, is that correct? Yes and no. Yes and no. Okay. So, you're right to, 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 to some extent. So, yes, if in Punjab we were to install a clean cooking unit in a household, we would be making more impact than we, would, we, we, we could potentially make in Gilgits or uh, KPK or AJK. No doubt about that. Because the change, the delta of right. change in that household would be far significant. Right. We'd be saving far more fuel and we'd be saving far more fumes from entering the atmosphere. Mm. But then we also need to think about the acceptability of a product. Right. And right now the product is the product that we've developed is not very acceptable in Punjab. Mm. So what is the change that we're making in Gilgit? Now I'll give you like a case example here. You know, one of our customers, and we do customer service, we got in touch with our customer in Gilgit recently, and we asked them, you know, well, how, what's their experience like? And they said, we typically spend 50 to 60,000 rupees uh, across the winter months in wow. purchasing firewood for heating and cooking. Right. And ever since they, they bought the Supreme stove, that cost has come down to 25,000 rupees. Okay. So. Yeah, so that's the economic impact that our technology, our innovation is making in a single household in Gilgit. So it's really, it's a, it's a, it's a point of efficiency, uh, more so than a point of indoor emissions. Now, we're not making a significant change in the northern regions of the country in terms of indoor household air pollution. People across uh, Azad Jammu Kashmir, Gilgit Baltistan, and those who are using chimneys and who are using closed cook stoves, they may not be very efficient, but if they are using a closed cook stove and if they're using a chimney, they're fairly safe from the ill effects of firewood fumes. So their health is not uh, as badly affected as in some other cases where cooking is indoors and without chimneys. Hmm. but then they're also they're losing out on the on the inefficiencies they're losing out on um you know on their money on right. the on the money that they spend on cooking fuels and heating fuels right and also they're losing out on or purchasing these fuels on a more regular basis right so the existing competition uh, will deliberately or 
maybe not so deliberately, but maybe to 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 keep the cost of the product low, mm. they will use materials that may not be of the highest quality or standard. Right. And so more often than not, cook stoves that are bought in the northern areas of the country uh, will not last for more than a month. Uh, I'm sorry, not uh, will not last more than a year. Right. One season, basically. Yeah. One season. Yeah. And so, so what are, like coming back to my question now that I've, you know, you've talked about it as well, that once it becomes, I guess it's also a question of it becoming more prevalent. Like if you sell first to communities that are willing to buy and are open to buying, this becomes more normalized, this cook stove and clean cooking. The idea, once people see more of it, it is something that they open up to. Like maybe it is a matter of selling it to those who are willing to buy it and then sort of going to the rest of the population that may be hesitant at first, but now has seen a huge growth in these you know, clean cooking alternative solutions. So that definitely makes sense. So what are, what price points are you looking at as far as these stoves are concerned? And how do people usually like end up, is it like a one-time cost or is it like, how are you incentivizing people further to buy these cook stoves? So we tell people that, you know, they'll recover their money on the cook stoves within a month or at most two months of buying it. So the efficiency will pay for the stove. Okay. And so that's really our USP. Apart from that, we initially thought about uh, selling the stove on easy installments, but recovering a thousand rupees, you end up spending a thousand rupees, recovering a thousand rupees. And that leads into the sustainability of your business. Right. so really the model that works and, uh, and, and in the northern parts of the country, people are in the habit of actually paying upfront for cooking units. Okay. In we did installations and we did, uh, uh, sorry, not installations, installments. We were not very successful in recovering the money in time. But even though the focus group or the, you know, the community that we worked in, I mean, we provided installments only to a handful of households. So it was, I, I wouldn't say that it was conclusive. Mm. Um, and we can't really say it was for the entire Punjab because Punjab in itself is the size of so many countries right. across the globe. So we did this in in a, in one village in Kasur district. Okay. And over there, you know, 50% of the people were good with paying their money on time and 50% of the people were not so good. Right. And maybe if we partnered with a microfinance institution for Punjab, maybe we right. could crack this. And it seems that people would be willing to pay less than a thousand rupees for a, a novelty product that will save them uh, fumes and firewood. Hmm. Even even if they're gathering it, and I'm speaking particularly about Punjab here, but in the northern parts of the country, you know, we're not. You don't really need to look at those other partnerships. You can actually hmm. directly sell in the market. Right. So our you know our beachhead segment is is there for the northern areas. Okay. And have you looked at partnerships? So like in Punjab and Sindh, like in those areas, have you looked at strategic partnerships? You know, with organizations like Eco Energy, for instance, who have a wide net of customer base who 
are used to you know making payments on a regular basis and are open to solo products has that been on the cards like strategic partnerships like that where an organization has an in in a community and that community is now open to sort of solar solutions to problems uh, or to just you know alternative solutions i think b2b partnerships are going to play a big impact in our scaling program and uh, the few organizations that we're talking to also include eco energy like you mentioned right yeah so we're we're talk- we've been talking to eco energy for some months now mm. and um, they are looking at our product and they they they're developing a plan to put our product in front of their customers and see how they respond amazing amazing and, uh, apart from that we're also we've already sort of collaborated with the ahan rural support program in right right uh, their work in establishing and identifying women entrepreneurs has been very beneficial for us so you know some of the women entrepreneurs that akrsp has de- has already developed are also now representing jan pakistan mm. and cool. um, the, you know they're pushing our product in in their communities right uh, so we're going to end with sort of so you talked about you know fundraising and how big of an how the world has sort of moved away because of donor fatigue and investor fatigue uh, that sort of thing what has been your experience sort of doing that uh, with a product like this within pakistan local investors so fundraising has been very challenging uh, but we've been successful in raising a little over 200000 dollars thus far right and we're looking to raise another 300000 this year uh to help scale operations and right. to help achieve our targets is and that all local investment or is that coming it's really to, no most of it is coming from out of pakistan right um and very recently we a couple of local investors have sort of you know started taking interest in our work nice so that's also really encouraging and it's because you know they they take maybe less time to understand the context that we're working in mm. um and it's nice to have local investors because then it also adds to the ecosystem right uh, of social you know the social enterprise space is, is a very new space in pakistan and it's right. it's, it's just taking root mm. and uh, you know success stories will lead to more success stories right so that's the experience that we've had on fundraising thus far we've uh, mostly it's been you know we've received funds from the canadian government we've received funds from the uk government um we've won social business competitions in uh, in dubai in dublin ireland right uh, in karachi um the shell the shell foundation right, right. um and we've also had a successful crowdfunding campaign that was based out of london amazing so it's re- i mean if you look at the whole sphere of you know where we've received money from and mm. it's been across the board it, it's been across the board it's been across the globe really mm. um, and um now moving forward we have a local investor that's uh, taking interest in our work and is thinking about joining us on a revenue sharing basis amazing so what is 2018 and beyond sort of look like so you mentioned your in line today is another 300000 apart from that what else are you looking at 
We're looking at expanding our retailer network. We're looking at expanding our, uh, you know, our, our, our penetration in the markets where we already exist. Hmm. And we're looking to sell, uh, we want to sell a minimum of 10,000 units this year. Right. And uh, we, we'd be happy selling more than that. Right, obviously. So, <laughs> thanks a lot for taking out the time. Uh, it was a great conversation. Definitely, I definitely learned a lot from it. So, good luck with everything that you guys are doing. And I really hope to hear a lot of good things coming towards Jan Pakistan and out of Jan Pakistan. Well, thanks for having me on your show, Taha. It was great talking to you. Great talking to you, sir. As always. As always. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Very good. Bye-bye. This episode was recorded and produced by Taha Jaleel, with post-production also done by Taha Jaleel who can definitely do with a few extra hands, and which will also result in him not talking in third person anymore. So, if you're passionate about podcasting, or just excited to experiment with this medium to create content, do reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or email us at hello at pakistanpodcast.com. Music is by the very talented Ali Fawad, whose work you can find on SoundCloud under alif.bay, that's B-A-E, or on Patari under alif. And now, I'll let Alif take us out with this amazing track, It's Just a Feeling. Until next time, good night and good luck. Freedom is to me.